0: Hi everyone, I'm Rachel Wolfson, the host and founder of Web3 Deep Dive Podcast. Web3 Deep Dive Podcast focuses on real world Web3 use cases to help you better understand how Web3 is being applied today and how it may be leveraged in the future. If this sounds interesting, I encourage you to subscribe, like, and share the content that you're seeing today to help spread the word about Web3. Hi everyone, welcome back to Web3 Deep Dive Podcast. This is a very special episode because I'm here in person with Charles Hoskinson, the CEO of Input Output, and we are here in Denver at Rare Evo, so super excited for this interview. Let's get started. Hey, Charles, how are you?
1: Wonderful being on. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel.
0: Thank you for coming on the podcast. This is like seriously made my day
1: yeah i've always respected your work i think you've been in the crypto space for years now i remember you from Coin uh, cointelegraph and, and before cointelegraph i think there was a, another publication forbes yeah forbes that's right yeah the, the little known forbes
0: right right yeah. i've been around for a while yeah um so charles before we get started with the questions i'd like for you to start off by telling our listeners a little bit about you know you don't need an introduction but for those that don't know who you are tell us a little bit about your background your role as CEO at Input Output um, and all of that.
1: So I've been in the cryptocurrency space for about 10 years and I started as kind of a a miner, a trader and uh, and I did educational content and at some point I said you know I really need to start a company and I've done three companies in cryptocurrency land. Um, That's what I'm most known for. So the first was Invictus Innovations and there we were two ahead of our time. It was 2013, and well, our first product was BitShares, and it was uh, actually a DEX and a stablecoin uh, on a platform. That was before smart contracts and Ethereum and all these things. And, and everybody said, wow, this is incredible, but it just didn't have the oomph necessary to kind of take over everything. But then Ethereum is usually what most people know me from. Um, and you know, we started that. And then later on, I started Input Output as kind of a really serious engineering and science company that would have the ability to research completely new cryptocurrency protocols uh, or identity protocols or zero knowledge protocols or whatever uh, the flavor of the week is and actually have the engineering capacity to be able to implement those types of things. So what we're most known for our work there is Cardano which is now a, a very large ecosystem with millions of people but we've kind of moved into almost like a venture studio where we incubate really cool ideas like Midnight which is a data privacy and protection play, uh things like Prism, which is an identity management system that's Web3 enabled, uh, to cryptocurrency wallets like Lace is our wallet. And we incubate those companies. We grow them and then eventually spin them out as uh, subsidiaries of the, the Parent Co. So I've kind of become like almost a meta CEO where I kind of a CEO of CEOs and it's been a very interesting transition and a heck of a lot of fun. We've grown to two people to seven hundred people.
0: Wow. Right, and you know, that's, it's funny because I never know your official title whenever I speak to you yeah. because you have so many different companies and roles yeah. and involvement. That's why I always ask you, how should I uh, introduce you?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm also not just in the cryptocurrency space. I'm a bison rancher. I do synthetic biology. I have a company called Ghostfire, which does glow-in-the-dark plants. You know, I own a healthcare clinic, Hoskinson Health and Wellness, down in uh, Gillette, Wyoming. It already has four thousand patients, and wow. so we do a lot of stuff all across. But the core of the portfolio is still is in blockchain and cryptocurrency. I'd say that's about eighty percent of my time.
0: Right. So I'm curious because you have a lot of interest and a lot of things that you do. What brought you to the Web three space? How did you get involved? I, I know you mentioned Ethereum early on, but what really attracted you to the sector?
1: Well, I'd say there's kind of two trends. One is the love of exponential technologies. And so those are technologies where you put a little bit in and then you get a lot out uh so human beings are really bad with exponential thinking we we were used to proportional things where if i push this hard it goes that far if i push a little harder it goes just a little further we're not used to an idea you push a little bit and you get something and then a little bit more and then suddenly the whole building collapses or something like that so you have technologies like nuclear weapons and synbio and blockchain where these things are exponential where a small group of people doing something could potentially build something could change the lives of millions to billions of people so i was very interested in that and on the political side i was very interested in uh... libertarian politics austrian economics this concept of freedom and liberty for people and i really got very disenfranchised with the u s political system because no matter what happened every election cycle is about managing the decline you know it's a little less freedom you know, a, a little less control over your life and just an acceptance that we're going to eventually move towards a dystopian world as part of the Ron Paul campaign and these things. And it was just real tough to live in a world of cynicism. And then suddenly crypto comes around, and then you have this idea that we can get our money back, we can get our freedom back. So instead of Every year we lose something. Every year we gain something. Like there's the self-sovereign identity movement. Uh, you know this idea of being your own bank, economic agency. The concept of radical transparency, where everything that happens is forever known by the system and auditable and time-stamped and immutable. These are not concepts that uh, dictators can survive within. These are not concepts that people who want to control you can survive. These are concepts that, for if you embrace them. Result in a society that's much more free. So those two things, when they combined in the cryptocurrency space, that was an example of a liberty-preserving or enhancing exponential technology. And I said, I have to get involved in that. Mm -hmm. This is the this is something that if it catches on, it's going to spread like wildfire because uh, nobody is going to just suddenly get more trusting of institutions and government. It's not like you're going to wake up and be like, you know what? I used to hate the FBI and the CDC and these things, but today I think they're doing a good job. It's like it's usually a one-way street. Once you've lost a faith in the marriage, you know, you're you're probably not going to get back together. So uh, I said, this is this is the kind of technology that if you get in early. You can have a lot of say over the philosophy of it and prevent it from being captured and becoming like a like a China CBDC social credit blend where a small group of people get to use an exponential technology to basically financially control everybody in the world. Instead, you can, like the internet, because good people were involved early, they created a system that tended towards spreading information rapidly. If they got a do-over, all the nations would have gotten together and when the internet was being constructed put checkpoints in to permit censorship and turning the internet off in fact you actually see this in old internet countries versus new countries and the older countries like the United States and Europe which were the first to adopt there are no real off switches but when you see new regimes like Ethiopia or China or other places they have firewalls and they can shut the internet off in the entire country because they proactively said huh, this would be really problematic for us if, you know, we had this information system and we can't control the narrative. So it's really important whenever these new technologies exist to take a step back and say, how do you build them in a way to preserve the original intent and make sure they can't be changed and so that they benefit as many people as possible.
0: Right. So let's talk a little bit about Cardano because Mm -hmm. what you just said was really interesting. And, you know, you've, I don't know if it's correct to say that you've built Cardano, but you've been a huge part of Cardano. Mm -hmm. What's the goal around Cardano? And what are use cases that you see today and that you're hoping to see in the future to kind of show that blockchain is a technology that can change things?
1: Yeah. So you build in layers and at its core, you have to have a very high integrity system that is a very nice place to construct trust Amongst people who don't trust each other. That's really the core concept of blockchain. It's why you spend so much time, effort, and money. And then you ask yourself which institutions are lacking trust, and those become your use cases. So, for example, uh, if you're really good at currency, you're actually really good at voting. Why? Because it's the exact same concept. You start a, a vote, and you give all the people eligible to vote a token, and then you tally it up, and then whoever has the most wins. It's a very similar thing. Okay, well, if we have a great trust engine, then we have a good voting system, we have a good finance system, a good supply chain system, a good property registration system, you know, these types of things. So what we focused a lot on were a lot of first principle questions of what is something 50 or 100 years from now, we'd be thankful that we construct it. So not something where we say, how do we compete with Bitcoin or Ethereum? We didn't even think about that. We said, let's have first principle thinking and say how should governance be done? How should the system be regulated and controlled? Um, how should the system self-evolve so that it always can stay feature competitive? And ultimately, how do you bet so that the system can organically get more useful over time? So that's an enormous endeavor because you, you have to actually do the work. You have to actually write research papers. So more than 150 scientists, about 168, and more than 25 institutions came together. Universities like Stanford, CMU, um, University of Wyoming, University of Athens, Tokyo Institute of Technology, uh, you know, University of Edinburgh, and they wrote over 180 research papers with more than 10,000 citations, and a lot of them got through rigorous peer review processes. And almost uh, seven, eight years now, so a very long tradition, and that created the backbone of a system where we felt we could not only maximize trust um, but also be able to self-evolve and continue to grow. And then we built a parallel effort with a research and engineering team that was able to translate these academic papers into code. And we did it in the same way you build rockets, medical software, uh, aerospace software, where the failure of the system results in the death of people or the loss of billions of dollars or both. So it's called high, uh, high assurance engineering, which is commonly not done at Silicon Valley. It's like the antithesis of Silicon Valley. In Silicon Valley, they're like, if it doesn't work, who cares? We'll just uh, we'll fix it in the update. Well, high assurance software, if it doesn't work, your pacemaker doesn't work, or you know, your plane falls out of the sky and everybody dies. There's kind of a different consequence to failure than the back button's not working properly and it's annoying, or the video game, it's like the characters kissing doesn't line up or something, whatever, uh, like in Baldur's Gate. So... Uh, so we basically did that and everybody thought we were nuts because they said, well, you're gonna be spending all these years building this insane foundation and you know uh, you won't be able to get user adoption and grow and nobody's gonna care, you're a science coin. But uh, we bet correctly, and what this has enabled us to do is have a very strong foundation that now millions of people will come into. There's a ton of great projects building on, and something that now the network has been running for over 2,100 days straight, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, run by the community, under attack 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and it's never gone down. Microsoft has gone down, Google has gone down, uh, Amazon's website's gone down, Google Play has gone down at least once during that time period. And these are multi-trillion dollar institutions with billions of users, and yet somehow they they went down. So it really does go and show you the, the power of this type of thinking. And what's great is those 180 research papers basically have painted a vision for how one can build this protocol year after year, decade after decade, century after century, to be the trust engine of the modern economy, so the global economy, um, and be where you build your, your identity system for your national ID and your voting system and your money systems, uh, and we're already starting to, to move in that direction. So it's been a great privilege to do it and probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life by far, uh, and we just had to learn so much because none of these things were compatible with each other. The, the agile startup culture is radically incompatible with this. Formal methods is typically not done in academic research. Academic research tends to be very theoretical, not so applied. So how do you square that circle and pull those pieces together? And that's that's what we did. Uh, you know, we, we were the project leader and bringing a consortium of dozens of companies around the world to kind of figure out how to put those pieces together.
0: Right. And I want to go back to talk about some specific use cases, but you said something interesting, the network has never gone down. Mm -hmm. And then you've named some networks that have gone down, like traditional networks that we, you know, Google, Mm -hmm. Microsoft, why has Cardano been able to sustain and, and not go down? Like, is it the decentralized nature of it?
1: It's also the protocol design. There's a completely new network stack, consensus protocol. There's really no code to copy. And you know that because we wrote it in Haskell, and it's the first cryptocurrency to do that. So there was nothing to copy. Everything was built from the ground up. And it was built with really good principles that started in the 1980s and 90s with the formal methods and functional programming community. And so we just designed it the way you would design uh, you know, a rocket or an, or a jet engine, or you know, something where if it failed, there's very serious consequences. Mm-hmm. So nothing is invulnerable. There's always problems and flaws, but there are things you can do to move yourself into a different category where usually those flaws aren't catastrophic. They're more of an irritant, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and unfortunately, the set of engineers who know how to do that is very small. So it, that's the other issue is that you embrace these tools that are very expensive and time-consuming to use. But then you're hiring people with PhDs in math and computer science, and they have like very specialized things, so they're very expensive. So like the 100 people who, who do this work, they all love us because they all work for us. But, you know, levity <laughs> aside, it's, it's not, a, uh, it's not a, uh, an easy endeavor. And the cool part is once you build that infrastructure, if it runs correctly, you don't really have to change it much after it's running at the core And so you can just run for 50 years or 100 years. Mm -hmm. And by the way, a lot of the Internet works that way. A lot of the code for the the basic utilities of the Internet were written decades ago and Mm -hmm. they're running on older hardware. And we're still using it on our super advanced cell phones and our modern browsers. So you have this ossified core. So I, I said, you know, if somebody took the pain of doing this, then it becomes a gift to everybody because it's open source, as anybody can use it, and it becomes that foundation that becomes the center of excellence. And frankly, the ecosystem was funded this way. You know, they didn't give people startup valuations. They gave people the valuations of Fortune 500 companies. If you look at Bitcoin and Ethereum or other things, if you're worth $400 billion, you probably should have a software stack that's worth that much. So why would you have a very brittle, fragile thing that's built with bad principles behind it that you're throwing away, that's something that when you're a $10 million company or a $100 million company that you embrace. So I felt if the space was moving in that direction, they deserved at least one project that took the engineering as seriously as this. And it's not that much more expensive. I think the all-in investment from development of Cardano, probably about $250 million to $300 million, which seems like a lot, but remember the market capitalization of protocol is $10 billion. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and Cardano at its all time high was over a hundred billion dollars. So there's a really good ratio of investment of development hours versus the economic impact that the ecosystem has had. Bitcoin is over a trillion dollars at its all time high. You know, so there should probably be some serious thought that goes into it. But, you know, you go to Silicon Valley and you say this and they say you're nuts and the, you can't be successful and you won't be first to market. And I say, well, Apple's never first to market, they're best to market. You know, it's worked out pretty well for them.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, You make really good points. I want to also talk about ADA. So Mm -hmm. that's the token behind Cardano. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, Mm if there's another way to put it. Um, Yeah, talk about ADA. What is ADA? How important is the token to the network?
1: So we wrote a paper to kind of formalize this idea because we needed a vocabulary, but we, we had this idea, Agalos Kiasis came up with it, our chief scientist, of this idea of resource-based economies. So basically, ADA or Bitcoin or Ether is the resource of, of a decentralized protocol, and it's what you use as the fuel to do whatever that protocol is supposed to do. So in the case of Bitcoin, all you can really do is move Bitcoin around. It's not a very complicated protocol because it's the first generation. It wasn't about that. Um, In the case of Ether and Cardano, these tokens are much more powerful in that they are the fuel for smart contracts. So you can use them to basically run the infrastructure. In the case of Cardano, we're a third generation, so we go beyond where it's also has a governance component where there's a big decentralized governance layer of Cardano. It's called CIP 1694 that's being implemented. And basically it gives you the ability to decide the direction roadmap and the use of the system. So what's nice about that is that as you do more things, you need more governance, you need more decision making capabilities. So you have a very simple system, everybody can see does it work? Okay, it does. All right, we don't need to change anything. Let's all go home. But we have a system that potentially could run a nation state's economy. At that point, you really do need to have a much more involved discussion about how should this system evolve, grow, change, and also deal with a crisis or a problem. Like Let's say there's a catastrophic bug or protocol failure or something like that. So in a resource-based economy, you do that with a resource. In this case, that's ADA. And anybody who holds it can participate in that. Uh, And what's nice about it is that it gets more decentralized over time organically. Uh, And the other nice part about it is it doesn't require a particular ethnicity or gender or geographic boundary or age limit or educational background. It's non-discriminatory. It's basically a resource and whoever has the resource has some form of a say. What's really cool is when you start thinking this way, you start saying, well, can you create systems that are multi-resource over time? We actually wrote a protocol called Minotaur specifically for this. So as we go to the fourth generation of cryptocurrencies, future versions of these protocols can actually have other resources people can acquire that are different from ADA. That basically have a say in the governance of the system or the growth or the use of the system and so uh, there's a lot of cool experimentation that's happening but we already planned this so we wrote the protocols for it so all the plumbing for this concept is already there inside the uh, roadmap it doesn't exist in ethereum it doesn't exist in bitcoin because they're just kind of doing things on a day-by-day basis so you have to have a token you can't remove them from blockchain they tried to do this in the permission blockchain world which is why Corda was a spectacular failure and Fabric is a spectacular failure because nobody has any incentives to run the system, Mm -hmm. to build on the system, to use the system. But on the other hand, if you have a token, you have to figure out how to use that in a way where you get predictable pricing because people have to have predictability in their use of the system. And you have to find a way to make sure that its distribution is fair. Mm -hmm. Another big problem in our ecosystem, um, the broader cryptocurrency ecosystem, is these gigantic insider you know, distributions, and Masari tracks them and shows them, and one guy controls 70% of the tokens or something like that. And so, basically, it's not a real ecosystem. There's no intention to really decentralize that or grow that. It's just a, you know, wealth generation engine for insiders. So, we call that Ponzonomics, and uh, it's it's been a constant fight because, you know, we kind of get hit from all sides. We have a very draconian view on how things ought to be built, but then we also have a very draconian view on distributions, and because both of those are radically inconvenient for a lot of the participants in the space. Cardano tends to get a pretty remarkable amount of criticism, you know, when you, you see it relative to what it's done. I mean, it's like we've written a million lines of code, 180 papers. We have a big ecosystem. We're not really out to get anybody. Why hate us? You know, but uh, it's interesting.
0: Are there, are there any plans for a stable coin to be implemented to use within Cardano? By chance would that even make sense
1: yeah it's my unfinished business for me because 10 years ago i created one and we didn't quite crack it and i've always wanted to do an algorithmic stablecoin. so the great part about having open infrastructure is that you don't need the people building the infrastructure to endorse your use cases for the infrastructure instead with a smart contracting system you just go and build it so we did we built a stable with a partner called cody where we kind of designed it kind of like elon musk with hyperloop where he designs it and then somebody else goes and builds it. So we designed it and then Cody deployed it. Uh, but basically it's called Jed and it's an algorithmic stablecoin. So you can take a volatile asset like ADA, uh, which has deflationary monetary policy, just like Bitcoin, and then you can use that asset to construct another asset that has stability. And somebody takes the volatility and they get the returns, but they take the losses and the other party gets stability. That's the mm-hmm. premium they have. So the design of Jed basically pursues that. And if it's successful over a period of time, eventually you can have a synthetic asset that pegs to the U.S. dollar, does not have the asset-backed custodial risk that Tether has or Circle has because the blockchain itself is the custodian, and the algorithm is the regulating function for that. So we're definitely in that game and pursuing it because we think it's super important for credit. You can't really have credit form without stability because you can't price money otherwise. And if you don't have credit, you don't have a financial system because people need credit for their life. You want to buy a car, you want to buy a house, you want to go to college. You, you start with very few resources, and you say, look, if you invest in me with credit, I'll go do great things, and I'll not only pay you back, but I'll pay you back more money. You don't have credit if, you know, if I give you something that's worth $10 today, but $100 the next day and $1 the day after. The volatility destroys credit, so you need stability for that. So we can't really get to replacing the economies of the world unless we have a stablecoin coin layer inside the system.
0: Right. In terms of use cases on Cardano, I'm just interested in having our listeners better understand that. You mentioned, was it Wyoming is trying to build a stable coin on Mm -hmm. the network? Or or just what use case would you like to share with us?
1: There's over 160 projects that are building, Minswap, Minswap, Muesli Swap, uh, Sunday Swap, uh, Wing Riders, these things that are DEXs. And there's uh, synthetic platforms. Uh, There's uh, things like IUSD, Stable coins, some are asset-backed, some are algorithmic. There's oracles like Charlie Three uh, that are kind of like our version of Chainlink. Um, you know, there is uh, there's a massive amount of NFT activity. Over eight million assets have been issued on Cardano. So there's a lot of really cool, interesting things that are in the creative space. Like for example, Snoop Dogg's son uh, runs a project uh, with partners called Clay Nation, where they're actually building a whole metaverse called Byte City, and they actually have a Uh, characters in a game line and they're even talking about tokenizing some of the intellectual property of the records that they have and these types of things so it's really amazing to live in a tent where i get to talk to snoop dogg at the same time as talk to like a hardcore engineer at stanford it's a very unique ecosystem and then you have the bigger use cases which they're starting to get curious and flirt with and what happens is they put a toe in then ftx happens and they pull the toe out And then they put their toes back in after a few years. And so the state of Wyoming, for example, is entering into an RFP process, which we'll bid on, uh, to issue a stable coin. And we think there's a real good shot that we can get Cardano to be part of that story. But that's cool because that's a U.S. state building a stable coin. So that's a very unique use case. What I'm most excited for are applications that involve governance and identity, and figuring out how to do that in a way that is decentralized. So there's a lot of discussions there. So um, PRISM, for example, is our identity framework. It falls the DID standard, which is self-sovereign identity. And we're trying to pull PRISM into the Cardano framework so that DAP developers can use it, but then suddenly you could talk about this idea of a regulated DEX where it's not centralized. So you have the ability to unblind where necessary, Uh, But for the most part, it operates in a completely decentralized way, and there's principles behind how that unblinding would work for regulatory purposes. Uh, There's also a rich sidechain ecosystem that's going to start moving its way through, and I think there's a lot of great partners that are building on Cardano that are going to take advantage of that, like World Mobile is one of our case studies there, where they're literally constructing a decentralized ISB. So here at this conference, there's people who have SIM cards in their phone that aren't connecting to AT&T or T-Mobile or Verizon. They're actually connecting to another ISP called World Mobile, and that's on the Cardano blockchain. Wow. And, uh, and they're in Africa and Zanzibar and other places. And so there's a lot of really cool stuff that they're doing. And it actually makes sense to build a decentralized ISP because the biggest problem you have with ISPs is infrastructure cost. And so it's really hard to upgrade when you're in 4G going to 5G. Somebody has to pay $25 billion to go build all those towers and do all those things. What if instead of a central entity trying to figure that out with some government subsidies, you now have a decentralized ownership where if a community wants Internet, they form a co-op, they come together, they build the infrastructure, they own the infrastructure and connect to a decentralized protocol. So this business model, I think, can become the way to get Africa connected connecting the unconnected and if you have digital money with it connecting the unconnected allows you to bank the unbanked so it's a very synergistic play, and i love mickey and his crew they're really good people and they've been building on cardano for quite some time and they've made some phenomenal progress going from a hypothetical concept to putting blimps up with internet and putting towers on CVRS, and in some cases buying Spectrum and decentralizing the entire network. And there's just so much sustainability in, uh, in what they're doing. But that will, of course, require identity as well. You know That's going to require uh, a lot of governance as well, especially when you talk about the intellectual property or the Spectrum ownership and the subleasing of the Spectrum because those are technically monopolized to companies. And there's got to be some legal construction that you can deconsolidate them. Um, and then there's, there's other projects that are you know super cool, but I could talk for two or three hours about uh, various things That's another misnomer if you talk to like people in the Ethereum community is there's nobody building on cardano. there exists nothing it's a ghost chain. Well Masari tracks it and if you look at you know the Masari reports, our chain volume, go to extendedutixo.org, these places every single moment of every single day there are transactions happening, dapps being built uh, it's a very vibrant ecosystem but one that's built with good principles. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff is going to be here to stay. And uh, I really do admire and enjoy that.
0: Right. So we had a discussion here at Rare Evo about governance. And I found that really fascinating because as a journalist in the industry, it's actually a topic that I haven't really focused on. I feel like I've overlooked it. And you've you made really good points during the fireside chat. And I want you to tell our listeners, I guess, first explain what governance and Web3 means and why is it important and how will we get there moving forward?
1: So every system, regardless if it's the Boy Scout troop or it's a nation state, it has a collection of things, rights, property, instruments of value, uh, philosophies, conduct that you have to make some decisions around. And in the Web3 world, it's very difficult because usually the governance structures that you would use in the private sector, the corporate world, shareholders, a board of directors, a CEO, an executive committee, middle management, they just don't exist if you want to be decentralized. So the challenge is that you have these things that are supposed to replace things. Like we want to get rid of your national ID system and create kind of a global transnational self-sovereign identity system based on dids. Okay, great. Well, what is the regulating it function how do we update that how do we pay for the software's update these types of things or you have like a dex or something like like, mint swap or sushi swap or Sunday swap or whatever Uh, you say well how do we upgrade that dex to have new features well we don't want somebody to be in charge and hold keys and be able to do that we need some form of a system to sort all of that out the problem is that normally you take something in real life and digitize it as an inspiration. We never solve the decentralization of corporations in real life. We have co-ops and these things, but the largest companies in the world are very autocratic. They're ruled by a king, a CEO, and they have a board of directors, so they have an oligarchy or a plutocracy that kind of flows around them. So we kind of have to go back to the drawing board in the Web3 space and talk around How do we learn the best things from standards bodies like the IETF and the W3C, open source projects like the Linux project, and also from co-op theory and these things and put them together and figure out how do you create an on-chain governance system. Now, this is important. Why? Because organisms die if they can't evolve and change based upon the changing environment. So just because you're the best ice manufacturer and shipper doesn't mean that you're going to be in the ice business in 20 years. Why? Because people invent the refrigerator and then suddenly nobody needs the ice man anymore. So if you don't have a business model that allows you to stop delivering ice and maybe deliver something else like milk or whatever, you're gonna go to business because nobody needs your product anymore. They can make it themselves. Well, analogously, if you have a cryptocurrency protocol and you built it and you built it in a way that's maximally decentralized with no governance system, then it'll run until it's no longer useful because nobody will use it because it's, it's too expensive and inefficient. Alternatively, if you have a poor governance system, one person could be compromised and completely destroy everything that you've accomplished. So this is the huge challenge. And the problem is the two big market leaders, Ethereum and Bitcoin, have both recused themselves in different ways. In the case of Bitcoin, they say governance is completely unnecessary. We never need to change everything. Satoshi got everything right. How dare you for questioning it? In the case of Ethereum, they say, well, Vitalik is just gonna figure it all out. Don't worry about it. It'll be okay. He's break it, you know. he's he's, he's got it, he's he's good, he speaks Chinese, everything's good. Um, and, uh, And then we're like, well, maybe, just maybe if you have 100 million users, nation states building on this thing, they probably want a seat at the table about the product backlog, they want a seat at the table about how decisions are made, what protocols to support, what standards to support, and these are not trivial questions. Like, here's a great example of a super hard question. We know quantum computers are coming, okay, which bet should we make technologically to protect cardano from quantum computers there's hash-based crypto and lattice-based crypto and there's all kinds of different primitives within them okay well here's the problem if you bet wrong you will have algorithms that nobody supports nobody optimizes around you could be 500 times slower than your competitor and also your key sizes could be 10 times larger which means you're 10 times more inefficient than you in terms of uh, de- uh, transaction sizes and these types of things. Okay, so how do we make that decision? Who gets to make that decision? That's a pretty big decision. For, and when do we do it? Do, do we pay the price now or do we wait a few more years for NIST to continue standardizing things and them to pick winners and losers and then integrate it? But what if we integrate too slowly and the quantum computers come and the system gets attacked and destroyed? So how do we decide that? That's governance in a nutshell. And that's just one example. Same for scalability of a system. Is your principal scale layer one or do you push it to the layer two? For roll-ups, what system should we bet on? There's 28 different roll-up systems floating around. Should we go with a Starkware-style system or a ZK Sync-style system or a Mina-style system or... Blah, 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 blah. slot. So good governance really requires three pillars. You have to have consent, institutions, and hard-to-change rules. No matter what you're governing, you have to have some system where people say, whatever decision you've made, it's a good decision, let's do it. And I agree with it. Or even if I don't agree with it, I'll go along with it. By the way, we don't do that in America anymore, even with elections. If our side loses, the other side's evil and they cheated. Bush v. Gore, and then Obama's not a citizen, then Russia interfered with the election with Trump, and then Biden cheated. We haven't had a legitimate president since 1988 with H.W. Bush. It's been pretty sad. Um, Consent's an important engine, and we don't have it right now in the Web3 space. We have to get there. Institutions, their only job is to take complexity and turn it into simplicity. Like the post-quantum thing, nobody really wants you to sit down and talk about lattice-based cryptography. They want you to say, we looked at everything. We got the brain guys in the room, and here are your three choices in the trade-offs. Which one do we go with? They want you to it's, – it's like Legos. You can either – build the Lego with the person, or you can have people assemble Legos and vote on which one you like the most. I like the Death Star Lego instead of the Star Destroyer. Well, decisions are the same way. Institutions build Legos. They, they find the bricks, they put them together, and then the community, through consent, decides which ones they like. Okay. And then, hard to change rules are things like, well, Bitcoin has a monetary policy that says it'll never ever be more than 21 million Bitcoin. What if somebody comes along and says, let's use on-chain governance and turn to million Bitcoin to give it to disenfranchised minorities or something like that. It's like, yeah, good luck with that in Bitcoin land. It's not gonna happen. They will not do it. Why? Because that's an enshrined principle as as much as like, like Catholics with the Pope. It's not changing. It's not gonna go anywhere. So that's a constitution. You need some sort of higher law where there are things that are really hard to change with that dramatic conflict inside the system. Every governance system requires kind of these things to come together, and then it creates two properties, intelligence and wisdom. Intelligence is the system's ability to take goals and achieve them within an environment with resources effectively or ineffectively. So how intelligent the system is is how capable it is within that respect. Wisdom is the system's ability to choose the right goals. Okay, so you can be a very intelligent system, very very unwise system. A great example would be the Manhattan Project, where you have this incredible brain trust of some of the most brilliant scientists in the world, but basically they handed the U.S. government, and later the world as a whole, a weapon that could end all of humanity, and we really didn't have the right governance system for such a weapon. So it was a very unwise thing to do, but it was a very intelligent project. You can have systems that are remarkably wise, but they lack execution ability. So there's a lot of think tanks in Washington, like AI ethics, for example. If you go to safe.ai, they talk about all the damaging and dangerous things artificial intelligence can do. And they write these big doctrines about how we should handle alignment. So it's very wise to say, well, this is exponential technology. We need to be scared about it but they don't have the ability to actually execute or do anything.
0: And alignment is governance for AI, exactly. as you mentioned in the fireside. Exactly. There. Yes, exactly. which I found really interesting because I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but it's the in every field, whether it be medicine, they call it ethics, or you know, it be uh, AI, they have alignment. They have a term for basically under the hood, how do you govern that and make mm-hmm. decisions about it? Because there's hard decisions you have to make, and medicine is like, Physicians-assisted suicide, you know, uh, you know, have made I think it is medically assisted, uh, you know, induced dying or something like that. Uh, med- medical assistance in dying, so we don't allow that for the majority of U.S. states. It's a common institution in Canada and similar equivalents in Switzerland. So every decision, every system has a an ethic and in a, a mechanism to do that. And there's a consent component. There's an institutional component that creates recommendations. And then there's principles that kind of exist that are hard to change. And um, and that they kind of act as that guiding star. Why Web3? Well, we have to not only solve that, which is hard in general because there's not a lot of good functioning governments, but we have to solve that where there's no CEO, there's no king, there's no leader. So it's the single hardest thing to do. And my view is going to be the big differentiator that whoever embraces that is going to be long-term here in 20 years, 30 years.
0: Right. And also, I mean, there are so many different blockchain networks. It's just, you know, it boggles my mind because there, it doesn't seem like there can be a governance that rules all networks. There has to be governance for each individual blockchain network. So to your point, which network is going to get it right? Once that network gets it right, that may be the network that survives long-term that you see use cases built on because there's governance.
1: Right. And also just think about the the value of the resource. When you say we're committed to governance, what you're really saying under the hood is, every one of my users has intelligence and wisdom and special knowledge. And by having good governance, I get it as a resource of the system. You know, we keep thinking about where, where's your use cases and your utility. Well, the users are what really matter. That's what creates the network value. And if you have a system that's poorly designed, you can have millions to billions of people using that system, but they contribute nothing to the mm-hmm. system or very little to the system. If you have a system that's very intelligently designed, that every person who uses it gives you something. And then the more people you get, the more powerful you get. you have this beautiful recursive structure where year by year you get stronger and stronger because you start making better decisions. You're better able to execute those decisions. You get more users as a result of that. And then you get to use what they know to keep making the system grow.
0: Right. I mean, when you put it that way, it's like Web3 has a very long way to go before it evolves, it seems like. I feel like we talk about Web3 today, like it's here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it is here to an extent, but it's, I just, do you think it's still in an experimental phase where this is all just one big experiment?
1: Yeah, like when is the internet done? Um, you know, we, we had Amazon in 1994. It's very different than it is today. Is Amazon done as a product or as a company? Um, so it's never finished, but there is a question of, how quickly can people adapt and learn? And what's magical about crypto is it's like the Borg. It goes around and assimilates things, and it's so good at it. So yeah, there's this term we have in digital rights management. It's called the smart cow effect. And what it basically means is that if a cows are in a pen, if one of the cows is really smart and figures out how to open the gate, it'll open the gate. Now, every other cow could not even conceive or understand how to do that, but because that one cow figured out how to do it, the gate's now open and all the cows get out. So similarly, if only one project solves good governance, that then becomes the model and every other project can very quickly replicate and understand that. Atomic weapons were the same deal, it's a super complicated thing, but the minute that they were built, then suddenly the Soviet Union had it just four years later. Uh, So uh, I think that there's two sides to it of how do you get governance right and convince people that it is right, but the minute you've done that, it'll become a model. Everything in the cryptocurrency space has worked this way in my history, and and I was here long before Ethereum and smart contracts and all that stuff. ICOs were not a thing when I entered the space. MasterCoin discovered it, and then suddenly everybody did ICOs, and there was ICO mania. NFTs were like, what the hell is an NFT? I remember going to the Wyoming Stampede, and people were like, oh, yeah, we're going to take pictures of bananas and put them up and sell them and it's like oh, okay <laughs> and it'll sell for millions of dollars I'm like man those drugs must be great um, and then suddenly it happened now everybody's doing it there's a huge NFT movement so I, I, uh, I do believe that once you crack it it becomes well distributed because of the smart cow effect uh, and most people follow those principles and there's certainly a very vibrant governance discussion around the, the especially the, the third-generation coins like Tezos for example us polka dot with gov so there's and there's a lot of DAO associations that have formed. There's even actually legislation that's been passed, like in Wyoming. There's the DAO law. So I, I'm optimistic and bullish about it because I think some people get that this is going to be the thing that decides who gets to be the leader of the pack. I do believe there's a first mover. Where you're right, it, there's no sense in having four thousand governance systems. And so once a dominant form farm forms. Then you really have this concept of governance as a service and then a collection of chains will end up basically becoming the governance backbone for all the DeFi protocols and these other things and the founders then don't have to worry about that because imagine how shitty it is to be like you know uniswap and say okay our job is to build the best decks oh by the way we also have to build a government at the same time because regulation And they're like, okay, am I a DEX builder or am I a political scientist? These are completely different topics and very different things. And in many cases, the things you do to build a good government actually harm your productivity and competitiveness inside that space. They're actually sometimes contradictory to each other. So they don't want to be involved in that. They would much rather say, "Where, where do I buy? You know, can I just plug into something and then it works and my users are happy. And that's how most open source software works, is that we tend not to think about how our graphics drivers work or these other things. We just want to know where to find them. We plug them in, and then they do the job, and we accept the trade-offs, whatever they happen to be.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it seems like there's a lot that has to be done. It seems like you're doing an amazing job, obviously, so we'll have to wait and see what the future holds. Um, I also wanted to ask you briefly about, you've spoken in front of Congress in the United States about... Web3, blockchain, cryptocurrency, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Uh, Can you share a little bit about your experience there and what you're trying to, I don't know, uh, help push along in terms of regulations here in the United States?
1: You know, I have a long and tortured history with the House of Representatives. You know, the first time I got involved in politics at that level, we pushed for the audit of the Fed back in 2011. And, we got a situation where a super majority of people in Congress agreed that we should do a one-time GAO audit in fact most congressmen that we talked to when we told them we need to do an audit they just assumed that it was audited because it's a government agency and then we informed them because of its unique structure it was beyond reproach and couldn't be audited and they said well that's insane we need to audit that and then it was like invasion of the body snatchers where like a few weeks later you talk to the same congressman they're like we cannot audit the fed it will interfere with financial independence like oh they got you bill um so you know that was where i started and then i've kind of watched things all along for the most part i didn't care too much what the u.s government did outside of the fact that it's very clear that cryptocurrencies are neither commodities nor securities there's some sort of weird thing that's different Generally speaking, whenever that's the case, you need in law to create a new definition and a new form of regulatory structure for it. So you, for the things that require centralized control, regulate that more like a security. And for the things that are truly decentralized, you regulate that more like you would weed or gold, where there's certainly markets and expectation of return, like people buy gold to make money. But nobody would say gold is a security. You can certainly securitize it, but then that involves a centralization and a promise of a counterparty and these types of things. And taxes, for example, I grow hay on one of my farms, and you know, no, the IRS doesn't show up at my door and say, hey, all that hay in the field over there is worth $20,000, so you owe us $12,000 in taxes or something like that. No. What they do instead is they say, when you harvest the hay, you sell the hay, that's when your tax event comes look at staking in cryptocurrencies, they tax you up front as soon as you get the coins, Mm -hmm. even if you've realized value or not. Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's a very fragmented, bizarre time. And we pushed aggressively for some form of compromise. And actually, it almost got done in 2022. There was the Stabenow Bill, the Financial Innovation Act. There was the Digital Commodities Exchange Act. There was the Biden executive order there was an inevitability that some form of compromise would come together. And what the lawmakers were waiting for was the 2022 elections, whether a red wave happened or not. If it was a red wave, the Republicans would have a much larger say in the overall final form of the legislation. If it was a blue wave, then the Biden executive order and the recommendations of it would have a larger say. The problem was that FTX happened. And so it went from a conversation of, we are gonna do something, it's just what you know, is it a little bit more to the left or a little bit more to the right, but a bipartisan bill will be passed and new definitions will be created like auxiliary assets to suddenly we're not even gonna have the conversation and one political party is now devoted to punishing an entire industry for two years just just because they got egg on their face because they had to have accepted money from the Bernie Madoff of our time. So unfortunately, that resulted in an insanely overzealous SEC, which has created a lot of harm and damage uh, to the industry, harmed our national security because it's offshoring a lot of incredible cybersecurity talent, um, and ultimately damaged the competitiveness of the United States. And it left the United States behind because all these other nations didn't wait for us. They passed their own laws and regulations like MiCA, for example, and the European Union. and The whole MENA region is creating its own regulatory structure. The Japanese already have with the JFSA regulations that came in. Singapore has. Switzerland has. And as a result, the, um, the United States is now one of the worst countries in the world to start a cryptocurrency business instead mm-hmm. of the best. Mm-hmm. When we could have been the best because we had all the talent, all the universities, all the entrepreneurs, and a lot of the token capital there. This was self-inflicted and very unnecessary. So I spoke before Congress during that period where compromise could probably have been made. Now it looks like probably what's going to have to happen is a political party has to change and the Republicans have to get elected. In fact, in discussions with some of the Republican candidates who are running for president, mm-hmm. the consensus candidate to replace Gary Gensler is Hester Pierce. Just to give you a sense of how radical, radically different the opinions of the parties are. And by the way, that's a bad thing. Um, not I love her and she 's great, but it just should not be a partisan issue that Republicans like crypto and Democrats hate crypto. This is a bipartisan issue of let 's give power back to the people, have more transparency and openness and American competitiveness and national security. And it 's become a partisan issue where if you 're a Democrat, you have to hate something that you probably should like. The majority of Silicon Valley people are blue on Team Blue. They're, they're like Mark and Drayson's a Democrat, and A16Z is like one of the largest investors in our entire industry. So it makes absolutely no sense at all for 70 and 80 year old people in the Democrat Party to hold an entire industry hostage and make it a partisan issue just because they got a little embarrassed that they blew kisses to uh, to Sam Bankman-Fried. So it'll work its way through, um, and it'll unfortunately work its way through in a very partisan way, and it's going to be very painful. But eventually, a decision will be made. The challenge is that it's going to set America behind the rest of the world. And it's very likely that already the Googles, Microsoft, and Facebooks of our industry have been incorporated, and they're probably going to offshore and be abroad. So we lose those trillions of dollars of money and jobs in the United States because of the actions that are being taken right now.
0: Is that going to impact you and the companies? I don't know if those are U.S. companies that you've, you know, if Cardano is a U.S.-based
1: well, I mean, Cardano is a protocol and it's everywhere, and it doesn't impact the protocols or ADA, and it doesn't impact input output because we truly are a global company. We have a Singapore office and uh, you know, we're, we're all over the place. We're incorporated businesses in Abu Dhabi, and so we're prepared regardless of the winners or losers. The Cardano Foundation is based in Switzerland, for example, so it doesn't impact us, it just means I hire fewer Americans. Mm -hmm. And I do fewer deals in the United States Mm -hmm. and it ultimately hurts our economy as a whole. Because if the job is to create jobs, if the goal is to make America pay back its debt and make our money stronger and these things, why would you then destroy an entire industry that's going to bring trillions of dollars into the country and offshore that and give it to Singapore and to Dubai and to Switzerland and also in national security? They tell me again and again, while I talk to lawmakers, we are deathly afraid of a cyber war with China and the consequences of it. Well, the people who are literally the best cryptographers and information security professionals in the entire world, because they make the most money, are in the cryptocurrency space. So literally, like Adi Shamir is writing papers. He invented RSA. Uh, Silvio Macaulay is the founder of Algorand. He has a Turing Award, which is the Nobel Prize of Computer Science. And he invented zero-knowledge cryptography. Is he writing zero-knowledge crypto papers uh, in MIT? No, he's running Algorand. So why would you offshore that guy and all that cryptographic talent he has, have them go to Europe and elsewhere? Because when they go there, now they're creating products and protocols that maybe China uses and Russia uses instead of the United States. It's just so insane in every dimension you look at to harm this industry. And the issue is that uh, the media is complicit in it and the political parties are complicit in it and it's very deeply frustrating but you know as an entrepreneur it doesn't matter to me because i move forward mm-hmm. you know and cardano is a global thing and there's millions of people around the world there's more people outside of the united states who use cardano and build on cardano than there are people in the united states but as an american it hurts me right because i don't want to live in a country with a 20 percent unemployment rate i don't want to live in a country that's in a depression my grandfather grew up under that it was brutal on my mom's side I grew up in Michigan, and, uh, and there, you know, everything was just so hard. They had root cellars. They pickled their own food. They sometimes would go days without eating. On my dad's side, he grew up Montana, and people would literally freeze to death. And you didn't find the body for two or three months, you know, after winter. And they go in and say, oh, well, I guess he didn't survive the winter. That's, that's real sad. But that's how people lived in those type of economic conditions. We've forgotten those days. But now uh, they could come back and look how quickly things change. Venezuela is a great example. During the 20th century, Venezuela at one time had a higher GDP than China. People forget that. And look at where they're at now. Hyperinflation, terrible economy because of horrifically bad governance. You had a leader come in who destroyed the private sector, drove a lot of people abroad, and nobody will ever trust the nation again. If you're an oil company, why would you want to do business with a country that at any given moment can nationalize the industry and destroy you? You just don't trust them. You say it's too risky. Mm-hmm. So if you're a cryptocurrency business, even if the United States at this point passes some laws, if those aren't permanent, they're bipartisan, then they say, well, the Democrats get back in power. They're just going to attack us again. And the SEC is going to sue us again. I can't take that risk. I'm just going to go to a jurisdiction from day one has been our friend, and it's not gonna betray us or or turn on us.
0: Right, and it's like, well, with the XRP court ruling, um, you know, that XRP is not a security for retail investors. That was a small victory, right? but it doesn't guarantee that every token is not a security for retail investors.
1: And and after $300 million was spent and over 30 months of brutal bare-knuckle fighting, instead of the SEC saying, perhaps we should reevaluate the policy, they say, we're just going to ignore the ruling, appeal it, yeah. uh, and continue fighting and act as if nothing happened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy.
1: It, it's, it's just so patently absurd yeah. to, to put people through this. And for what purpose does this help retail investors? Absolutely not. Uh, does this help our competitiveness as an industry? Absolutely not. Will this kill cryptocurrencies? No, it just drives it offshore. Mm-hmm. You're, you're just getting rid of an entire sector of your economy, which by the way, the majority of securities will settle on by 2030, according to Citigroup. The entire Gamefly and Metaverse economy, the entire future of creatives with NFTs, all stock, stock exchanges are going to become kind of like DEXs at some point. All your future asset-backed stablecoins are probably going to run on these paradigms. Your voting systems are probably going to run these. And your ESG too. Like the Democrats love ESG so much, ESG, ESG, they say it again and again and again and again. Mantra: You go to milk and it's like the thing. ESG. How do you create systems where corporations can prove they're carbon neutral? but not reveal competitive knowledge. Like for example, Apple doesn't want Samsung to know how many memory modules or how many LCD screens they're building or buying, but they have to prove properties about those things. Blockchains and zero knowledge cryptography are like the single best way to do that and comply with these mandates they want. So now what does this mean? Every U.S. company has to go and buy those systems from European, Chinese companies from the Middle East and from Africa because the U.S. has no company that does that because they've drawn them all offshore. So now Microsoft has to pay a 20% global tax to foreign companies to get products and services because it's illegal to build them here. It's just so beyond belief that they would choose a policy like this when we did the exact opposite in the Internet. If we replay this, this would be basically like saying e-commerce is illegal in Mm -hmm. the United States and let Amazon be founded in Germany instead or the U.K. instead. Or that the Internet, if you're in America, you have to get a license to use the Internet and everybody else it's open and then the internet grows globally and now Google is a you know a British company or a South African company. Right. You, you think just because you change the law that the, suddenly the company comes back no. Once they're founded and they're started and they have all the people there, they stay in that jurisdiction because they're there. That's, they're from there. They speak the language. They're, they're born there. All their employees are there. There's no way you can pull them in. Or then, like, like Germany can call up Larry Page and Sergey Brin and say, boy, it'd be great if you relocate Google to Berlin. Yeah, It's not going to happen. Right. And this is literally what they're doing. Is This is a nascent industry. The winners and losers are being selected right now. And they're basically saying the winners will not be Americans.
0: Yeah. And it also, you know, it impacts journalists as well yes. in the industry, such as myself. Um, you know, it impacts everyone in the industry in the United States. Um, it's, it, the industry has changed a lot yeah. since when I came in in 2017. I, right. I'd say things have gone downhill. <laughs> but, you know, obviously I'm still in it. Yeah. And I'm still in it for a reason because I see that light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that what you're doing, and honestly, Charles, I really feel that there are some people in the industry that I'm like, they're going to save blockchain. You're one of those. And I'm not just saying that because I'm interviewing you. You're one of those people. Silvio is one of those people. Um, there are certain people that yeah. I really um, see as like, we'll, we'll keep the industry alive. And it won't matter where we're based.
1: Well, I appreciate those kind words, and yeah. Silvio's a very good friend as well. I've known him since before he launched Algorand, and he's one of the good guys. And It just shows you that you can have somebody who's at the twilight of his career become young again and, and actually get inspired and become an entrepreneur. It's really hard to start a company. It's even harder to start a company when you're in 50s and 60s, and you have no incentive to do it. Right. So he's already won in academia. He's got the Nobel Prize in computer science and he's a tenured professor at MIT. You can't, you've maxed out the stats. You can't, you can't go anywhere beyond that. So you're getting real comfy in those types of roles and it's easy to be an advisor. It's a lot harder to be a CEO. And it takes a lot of passion to go into that role and try to build something. And so I have enormous respect for him, but it's a a telling moment that people should reflect upon and realize that if somebody's willing to go through that kind of pain, there must be something here that's more than a company. You know, there's there's something more substantive than that.
0: Right. We're going to wrap that. I mean, I could talk to you for hours, but unfortunately... You've got a lot to do. Um, So any final thoughts that you want our listeners to know?
1: You know, as as, uh, pessimistic as I can be sometimes about U.S. politics, you know, one of the reasons why I got into this space is because it transcends politics. I I am still very optimistic about crypto as a whole and blockchain as a whole. And I see that we're right on schedule to change the world. We've gone from nothing to a multi-trillion dollar ecosystem with hundreds of millions of people in 13 years so we come back in another 10 years that's not going to stop growing it's going to keep going it's going to keep pushing and then ultimately I do believe that crypto is going to eat the world and uh, it's going to become the backbone of trust for every social system the voting system the supply chain systems the money systems and it's going to result in a world with a little bit more liberty and freedom that's why I signed up that's why I'm still here you know obviously we diversify I do medicine now and synthetic biology and I raise bison and, and because they're cute, I love little Dyson. Yeah, but uh, they are but cute. at the end of the day, my primary vocation has always been dealing with exponential technologies and trying to bring people together and realize how they can make the world a lot better than uh, where it was.
0: Yeah, Charles, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
1: Absolutely, thank <laughs> you so much.
0: Thanks. Special thanks to Aaron Bender for producing Web3 Deep Dive podcast. I'd also like to thank the sponsors behind Web3 Deep Dive. Finally, thanks to the listeners for tuning in. Please be sure to subscribe, like, and share. I'll see you guys next time.